Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's turn now to the UK with Rupert Harrison, BlackRock Multi-Asset Strategies Portfolio Manager, formerly of the Treasury as well, working alongside the former Chancellor George Osborne. Rupert, fantastic to have you with us on the programme this morning, especially on a morning like this morning. Rupert, let's talk about the response from the Bank of England and what may still come from Treasury a little bit later. I agree very strongly with what you've all been saying in the sense that I think this is a real demonstration of strength from the UK system. I think it shows a sort of maturity from the Bank of England, which is an institution that is, I think, comfortable in its independence, confident of its independence, uh, and therefore willing to be seen to act in a coordinated way with the Treasury. We saw some similar things in the past, uh, the funding for lending for uh, scheme set up in 2012. Uh, but I think it is a big advantage of having strong, credible institutions. I think, as you say, it would be very difficult for the Fed to do something similar. Indeed, we saw the Fed deliberately separate its emergency 50 basis points cut from the G7 finance minister's call, I think largely due to wanting to avoid the perception of uh, impositions on its independence. So, yes, I do think this is UK institutions uh, demonstrating how you can boost confidence by coordination. Rupert, let's talk about how important it is to help SMEs in a moment like the moment we're in right now. It seems to be a big focus of the Bank of England. How do we get that focus to go beyond the UK and to places like Europe and into places like the United States? Well, look, I think that the, the policy community get it. Uh, I, I think that we will see uh, further action in the budget in the UK today. You know, the, the, these, these term funding schemes for banks with incentives to lend to SMEs, they're, they're similar to the kind of things we did in the UK in 2012 with funding for lending. They're okay. Frankly, the banks can game the targets, and this is not a way to guarantee that you're going to get cash to SMEs. You have to see finance ministries acting really to get cash to the SMEs that are in trouble on top of the bank, right. central bank actions. I think you will see that in Europe. I think it will be a, a you know a combination of European wide, and frankly, you just have to going to have to wait and see national level actions. Um, and I hope that we will see it in the U.S., but of course, it's going to be a much more difficult uh, mechanism to get agreement around that. Right. US, even though the, the policy community, I think, now fully understands that that's what's needed. Rupert, let me ask you the same question I asked of our Stephanie Flanders earlier today. Did the reason we get that this action today was it because of Prime Minister Johnson? Was it was because we had essentially a pro-Brexit vote? Was it because we have a new independence or free thinking in the United Kingdom less attached to the European continent? No, I don't think so. I think this is because of the sort of historic patterns of working of the UK institutions. I think the Treasury and the Bank of England have for a long time now worked well together. Uh, and I think that there is an understanding in the Treasury and the bank that this is a time for, you know, this is not a time for holding back. So I think you will see Chancellor Rishi Sunak in the budget later uh, today, uh, you know, if anything, you know, doing too much. I think he will very much not want to be seen as kind of under-delivering. I think it will be over-deliver, belt and braces, uh, you know, resilience and, uh, you know, uh, insurance against what might be to come. I don't think that's you know, particular to this government. I think it speaks more to a sort of historic strength of UK institutions. But of course, it is very welcome to see the UK, uh, I think, performing kind of well 
uh, internationally compared to other countries. Going to your uh, core, which is investing, how does this give you conviction when it comes to uh, putting on a trade? In other words, are you going to invest more in UK assets as a result of what the policymakers did? It certainly at the margin makes us feel more comfortable that the UK is going to do everything possible to avoid permanent economic damage from this disruption. Uh, But frankly, you know, I I think we've seen in market action over the last few days that while policy actions are welcome, you know, people in markets are very, very aware that policymakers are are secondary at the moment to the sort of fundamentals of the spread of the virus. And, uh, you know, in a sense, markets are paying more attention to the to the negatives, i.e. when and how widespread are restrictions on activity going to be. I think that it's it's about putting confidence in place so that if we do get to a peak situation where people can see beyond the peak of the virus, that's when people will take uh, confidence from policy measures being in place to prevent permanent damage. And that's where we'll help see the kind of more rapid bounce back. Rupert Harrison, thank you so much with BlackRock this morning, joining us after an historic moment for the Bank of England. Without question, our interview of the day on this moment for central bankers and with this and the honor of having David Blanchflower with us of Dartmouth College, of course, his public service to his very United Kingdom, his public service and getting Cardiff back into the Premier League and then out again in the Premier League. We're thrilled that Professor Blanchflower could join us this morning. Uh, David, here we are. Quote, this is prudence with a purpose. It's resilience with a reason. And that reason is to fulfill the Bank of England's mission, namely to promote the good of the people of the United Kingdom by maintaining monetary and financial stability. By acting today, the bank is ensuring that the strength of our financial system can be directed to where it's most needed in the months ahead. Mark Carney, how do you do today? Very impressive. I was just listening to the press conference. I thought they did extremely well. Um, the coordination between the three bank committees um, coming on a day ahead of the UK budget. So it looked like, you know, the big boys are in charge. I thought what was interesting, it reminded me of October 7, 2008. But I think Carney said it right. Then the problem was the financial system causing you know, a crisis. And he said, you know, the, the financial system here is going to try and come in and um, support this, this crisis. So I thought it was pretty right. impressive. Um, the two, the, the governor and the new governor sitting there together, um, I was really impressed. I mean, the concern is, do the, what the, I mean, I remember in October 7, 2008, six central banks cut. I was part of it. The big deal then was, did they, we knew things that the market didn't know. And the question is, you know, is that true now? Are there more things they know that right. the market doesn't know? That's the question, I think, on the table. Do you have a confidence with a medical crisis in an original ECB that to begin with, the ECB or, frankly, any other central bank can execute what the governor and the governor-designate executed today? Well, obviously, the big concern is that we're, whatever it is, 12 years now past that crisis, and the room to maneuver for the central bank is somewhat limited. I mean, the um, the, the Bank of England was cut from 0.75 to 0.25. Perhaps I, I thought they might go 25 basis points, so 50 is a big deal. What, what can ECB do? I mean, ECB is already negative. Christine Lagarde is obviously talking about this being a major problem. The, the room to maneuver 
is, is somewhat limited. Obviously, the, the coordination with fiscal policy is a big deal, and the fact that this statement was made on the day when the British, the new British Chancellor makes a statement for the budget suggests that these things are coordinated, and that's going to be the problem down the line. Could the ECB coordinate with other governments? What are the Germans going to say and do? What's going to happen at the, at the FOMC, where it looks like 100 basis points uh, cuts already priced in for the, for the meeting next week? Danny, there's also a question of what's the roadmap here, and a lot of people are pointing right. to 2008, and since you have experience uh, at the Bank of England uh, when you were a part of their interest rate setting monetary policy committee as an external member from 2006 to 2009 through the crisis, mm-hmm. is the 2008 period the one we should be looking at? Well, it seems so. I mean, the only two cuts that I recall, like this emergency meeting, which they very well did in secret, um, there was the two meetings the Fed and the Bank of England had had after 9-11, which may may be comparable. I mean, the the cut in 2008, the October cut, in a sense, what it signaled, it was that more than anything, it signaled that the central banks were on the case with much more to come. And I think that's what they were signaling today. I mean, they could have thrown more at it. They didn't do more QE today. They have, they, they're sort of holding that back, but they did all sorts of things about um, um, counter-cyclical buffer for the bank, money for the SMEs. So they certainly signaled there was more to come. But the issue is, well, as Tom was just saying, what, what, what can they do? How much more can they do? And the concern is if this crisis, as Lagarde says today, is comparable to 2008, that the, there are limits to what the policymakers can do. So, you know, I thought it was very impressive, good that they got in there, but down the road, who knows how much they can do. Danny, are there any non-traditional tools that we did not see deployed in 2008, ways to sort of uh, think outside of the historical reference that you yeah. could see central banks deploy now? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, Eric Rosengren in the U.S. is right. He started to talk about the ability of the Fed to broaden what it buys, not to just buy MBSs and, 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 and government-backed securities, to broaden out what it buys. That's an obvious possibility. Another think that possibility would work? is going the- negative. Um, that's still on the table. But I think that I think for the listeners, I remember being brief saying central banks could buy anything, um, and literally anything. So obviously, I think that's on the table. Um, the possibility that QE will broaden and extend, and as I said, um, it's thought about right. in the United States. The, the, the possibility yeah. of going negative I think, exists now. How negative? Right, knows? David. I've got to squeeze this in. A headline coming out of the United Kingdom, no doubt, from the Chancellor as well. The United Kingdom sees this year's GDP growth 1.1 percent versus 1.4 percent. Very quickly here, Professor. With that diminished uh, GDP growth, do we also see diminished inflation? So we've got a combination of weaker growth and disinflation. Well, well I think we do, but I think the mar- the worry is the markets will think that that. That 1.1 percent is overly optimistic. I mean, the scale of the the scale of the, of the shock that's coming looks to be large. So I think that might well be very optimistic. And and of course, what the central bank is going to have to do is just look through inflation, right. look at what's happening in the real economy, and that's what they've done today. So I think yeah. what happens to inflation is broadly irrelevant. But it sounds totally optimistic on the part yeah. of the of the OBR and the government to think that. Um, output in the UK is going to grow this year. Too short a visit. David Blanchflower of Dartmouth College here and of course his work with the Bank of England.
It is a fired up Nora Rubini with us today. His book of a, a good decade ago was outstanding. Is there a book coming up here? Uh, uh, you know, I'm are, thinking are we... about writing a new one, but <clears throat> it's going to be out next year. Okay, very good. Oh, there's there's a break exclusive from uh, Bloomberg Surveillance. One of the great themes we've had here over the last number of weeks is a team that has just been dedicated and folks really working seven days a week to get his voices. And one of the voices was Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs on oil, who was out front of an oil war of Saudi uh, and Russia and then uh, was with us again today and with his microeconomics from Chicago was just prodigious on these demand and supply shocks that we see. Let's discuss this now with Noriel uh, Rabini. And the backdrop to, for me on this Noriel is a visceral feeling of the old world of Saudi Arabia taking on Russia. What's your take on how anyone would take on Russia? Is it doable for Saudi Arabia to actually go after Mr. Putin on oil? <clears throat> well, uh, Saudi Arabia is going after Russia, but is also going after the U.S. shale producers. Both of them are a threat to Saudi Arabia. And I would say over time, uh, uh, the shale gas producer may be a bigger threat mm -hmm. to Saudi Arabia than uh, Putin and the oil in Russia. The other thing in this game is that while in Russia, they, you have to give credit to Putin that on the macro side, is fiscally conservative, has <clears throat> low budget deficit, low public debt is low inflation, while the budget deficit in Saudi Arabia right now is 7% of GDP. So their break-even fiscally <laughs> right. is more like $80 a barrel, while for Russia is around 40 45 So in this war, actually, on the fiscal side, it's true that Saudi have more reserves than they can right. run them down. But between the two, on a macro point of view, Saudi are weaker. But of course, they can play this game for a few months until the Russians are going to come and say, let's do a deal. Because okay, both sides want to get rid of the shale gas producer in U.S., but the shale gas producer in U.S., once all goes to 40, 50, are going to be back even if they're bankrupt. At the margin, yeah. how does Germany buy from Saudi Arabia versus their long-term relationship on hydrocarbons with Russia? Uh, well, you know, they have to diversify and they've decided to phase out essentially coal. So they're going to do more renewable energy, but definitely they need still oil from the Middle East and they need gas from Russia. So for Germany, there's no other option. Absolutely so. So if we're lower oil for longer, yeah. um, what does that mean you know, for the overall global GDP picture? Because you compare that, you weigh yeah. that against yeah. the, you know, the issues presented by the coronavirus on the yeah. demand side. Yeah. Does that push us into a global recession? Does lower oil keep us from going into a global recession? How do you weigh those two? Well, if the price of oil falls because of an increase in supply, there is a price war as opposed to a fall in demand, because until now, a week ago, was a fall in demand. Recession, global growth, prices were falling. That was a negative signal. But now all prices are falling because there is going to be a glut of supply from Russia and from Saudi Arabia. Then in that situation, actually, I think that the impact on the global economy at the margin is positive because the marginal propensity to spend of oil importers is greater than the marginal propensity to spend of the oil exporters. So the oil exports are going to produce less, they're going to do less capex, they're going to fire some workers, but then the consumers of oil 
even in countries like the US where we're not anymore a net importer, there is distributional benefit it goes to the consumer and it's hurting the producer, let alone in countries like China, like India, like Japan, like Korea, like most of Europe that are net oil importers. So at the margin, actually, this uh, war that is bad for the stock market because the stock market reflects the energy company's stocks, right. but for the real economy, actually, collapsing oil prices is a benefit mm -hmm. at the margin. All it's right. not going to prevent the recession because you have a coronavirus, but it's going to make it less damaging, at least uh, for the consumers. So the strategic value here for Saudi Arabia and in Russia to kind of put pressure on the U.S. shale producers, that will happen. We've seen the balance sheets for those shale producers. Not good. So there's a yeah. lot of credit issues yeah. here. Yeah. But as soon as oil, as you say, oil comes back to $40, $50 a barrel, Wall Street's going to come right back to the shale patch and we're going to have those guys start back up in a year or two. I mean, so yeah. strategically, the oil's in the ground. Uh, yeah. in the shale area. So I, I just, you know, I just don't see the long-term strategic value for what Saudi Arabia and Russia are trying to do. It seems like the near-term costs are just too much. Oh, they're costs, but then if you can let many of these guys, especially the smaller ones, going bankrupt, and many of them were over-leveraged, it's going to take a couple of years until these people are going to be able to start producing again when you have consolidation in the shale, gas, and oil industry. So you have a short-term loss of income, say for three, four months. They get a truce by June. And then uh, at that point, many of these smaller guys are going to be already bankrupt and you have some reduction in production. It's not going to be a huge reduction in production in the United States, but you can cause enough damage that you buy yourself maybe another couple of years. But you're right, over the medium long right. term, there is no way in which, especially the Saudis, right. let alone the Russians, can essentially deal with the fact right. that with shale gas and oil, the equilibrium oil price without OPEC is right. closer to 20, if not 10. Right in a perfectly competitive economy right. in which wow. there is no cartel, equilibrium oil prices might be closer to ten. Yeah. We're going to have demand fall in the <clears> medium <throat> term because there is going to be peak oil demand, and therefore oil prices have to be lower. Norel, I got one minute left. More yep. than anybody I know, you know Milan. You were Iranian, yep. Turkish. You ended up in Milan for you twenty know, years. The Synagogue Centrale. Yep. The whole Jewish yep. sense of Milan as well. Yep. What do you? How do you synthesize? a lockdown in your Milan. Well, it's terrible. I saw a video essentially of uh, Piazza Scala and Via Manzoni totally empty, deserted, like a total desert. But I think that the Italians are doing the right thing. They are finally doing what China did. Because in the US, we are actually fudging it, pretending that it's not spreading and it's going to get worse. In Italy now, they're going to realize they have to do what China did. Total quarantine. You're going to collapse the economy for a right. quarter. But if you can <clears throat> stop the contagion, then the economy is going to recover with the monetary and fiscal stimulus. If instead you fudge it, you kick the can down the road like the US, it's going to explode in your face. So in the short term, the economy is weakening less, but over time, it's going to weaken more. So the right. Italians now are going China while we're still doing what Italy did a month ago, and that's a mistake in the U.S. Norobini, thank you so much, of course, with New York University and his economic work worldwide. Future, look, he, he popped futures 20, yeah, 20 points, points. Yep. minus 95, uh, minus 76 right now. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's what a magic share. I don't take blame nor credit. <laughs> okay. And but, I never trade. But when it's your blame, <laughs> life. What's when it's your blame, all your detractors will let us know about that. Norobini there on International Economics. Handsome Gallo. I know he's very excited about jumping in. I can see him. He said he wouldn't speak until the VIX was 55. Jonathan Gallo, Credit Suisse <laughs> Chief US Equity Strategist. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. Your thoughts, your message for clients this morning. Well, I'm, can I just jump in on the, on the of last one? Of course you time? can. I mean, if you look at those 44% of, of Americans <clears throat> who are 
you know, on, you know, or, you know, paycheck to paycheck, cost. that guy is probably not going to be benefited all that much by, by moving his tax returns um, by a month. And, and at least no, but I they got to find a program for those people. Do we agree on a pair? Do we all agree a payroll tax cut is just doesn't. No, I think it? more broadly, John, the discussion <clears throat> here is about whether some of these demand side initiatives on the stimulus side are going to be useless or limited in use. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think, I don't think use, I don't think it's useless. They're, they're going to have an effect way after this crisis is gone. <clears throat> Um, but I think that these things, the narrower they are to addressing, you know, displacement in the in the energy sector, leisure um, businesses and displaced workers. And the, the, the benefit of being more targeted is it doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be appropriate. Otherwise, all you're going to see is, as, as Lisa was saying before, <clears throat> is that this money is going to get saved and it, and it just uh, it, it just doesn't have an impact. Well, I don't mind if it gets saved and I don't mind if it gets used to pay debt. I don't expect them to go out to a restaurant. I don't expect them to get a flight the worry we have right now is that people won't be able to make the mortgage repayments people won't be able to make their loan repayments and i think the i think the government has a really important role to play there i mean if, if small businesses need to make sure that they have lines of credit available to them so that if they have a hard time <clears throat> making is, payroll that the banks okay. are going to lend and the government can backstop that those kind of actions okay. i think are critical this is such a guy discussion Ms. Abramos, would you please explain to the world that the number one headache right now, without question, is children will be home from school. Totally. And now that totally upsets for millions of Americans the apple cart on, in so many different ways. Oh, well, I mean, that, to me, that's far greater than anything else. Well, that is going to be the key question is if you do shut down schools, will that keep people out of work? And that's an issue. But those are people often who have yeah. jobs that they go to on routine levels or even if they've got yeah. uh, gigs. I mean, this is going to be a serious issue, but John, I, I'm curious about, you know, all the people who have part-time jobs. The gig economy right now, I was watching, uh, I was looking at how Uber and Lyft and some of the other ride-sharing companies are looking at possibly compensating ride uh, drivers if they have to self-quarantine for 14 days or take off because they're sick. I mean, how much does this expose some of the cracks that's been created by that entire infrastructure? Yeah. First of all, the answer is, is is yes, it does, and we're going to see that. But I, I think that the difference between this <clears throat> turning into a recession and not is not whether or not we, the, the economy takes a little bit of a hit, right. but whether or not companies <clears throat> decide to lay off workers or whether those gig workers, there's enough of them that actually creates a problem. You know, if, if you look at the way that recessions have worked historically – it takes a period of time for a company, especially the labor market is tight. Companies, if they think this is going to be over in the next two or three months or whatever that period is, they're not going to want to lay off workers if they can avoid it. And they rather take it out of profits in the near term because hiring that worker back right. is going to be more expensive. And that's going to be critical. If this lasts longer, then you have a second issue. Yes, it's individuals are displaced, but but broadly, I don't think it will have that. Futures negative 72 down, futures negative 591. Then take this recession to discussion and it's all earnings 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 for fancy guys like you right now forget about that what's it do to the revenue dynamic and what does the revenue dynamic in this crisis signal to you six months out well we you know first of all the first quarter um is is really going to be fine why because we had a good january and february and even now we're just beginning to see certain right. things being closed down so the first quarter earnings you know our estimate is is it used to be that we're gonna have six and a half percent earnings in the first quarter now we think we'll have one that's not a a great number but it's not a disaster the second quarter we think that you know eps for the for the s p is going to be somewhere between down five and ten percent 
Um, but it really, the, the question is, how much longer does this uh, does it go on? If that's all we're looking at and you get a bounce in the second half of the year, which we think you will, flat earnings this year, which is what we're calling for, which is not brilliant, but it's if that's your worst case, that's not terrible. But it has to be, ultimately, it's how, how, how quickly we contain this. Can you thing. model what kind of multiple you would put on those earnings at the moment, John? Yeah, I mean, the multiple is going to move. You know, Tom it keeps harping on this issue with the VIX, but it's like it's super important. If the VIX ends the year at 15, meaning if this thing is reasonably resolved by the middle Wait, of the whoa, year. Whoa, whoa, You said 15, 1, 5. 1, 5. Not 50, 5, 0. No, 1, 5. 1, but if, if the end of the question is where is the VIX on December 31st, not <clears throat> where is the VIX on, on Wednesday, but if the VIX on December 31st is back down somewhere in that ballpark, which means that this is, is now part of our history, then you're going to have a multiple over 18 on the market um, come year end. How dependent are all of your estimates on the policy response, on the idea that we get a coherent and timely uh, policy response in the United States? Yeah, I'm not I'm not assuming that we're going to get something brilliant on policy. What I am assuming, and I think what, what when I talk to institutional investors, they're assuming is that the number of cases is going to rise as we test more people and the news flow is going to get a little bit uglier over, over the coming weeks. But in if we use the Chinese or Korean experience or whatever, we're going to see in two or three months from now, the number of cases is going to be shrinking, the number of new cases, and the market's going to say, okay, this thing is now under control. And if that's the way it plays out, then <clears throat> um, then then the multiple does rise back up on the Should market. I get out of cash? I'm triple leverage cash. What do you think? You triple leverage. Okay. <laughs> no, you, but you know, I mean, do I think, I mean, we have a 3,300 target between now and the end of the year. You, not, you're sustaining that right now. No, no, we went from 3,600 to 3,300. But would I, do I believe that the market will be higher between now and the end of the year? Absolutely. Do I think that we'll see new yet? lows Isn't it between now and already? then? Probably. It's Friday. Feels like December. It's the end of the week. The end of the week, December 31st. Feels that way, Tom. It does. Futures negative 71. Dow futures negative 574. John Gallup, thank you so much. Good to see you, John. Why don't you bring in Megan Green here with some really interesting, what's great about her, she's got a fancy British education as well, so she can really do the transatlantic Look, thing. to be honest, knows Europe better than anyone I speak to on a regular basis. Megan Green joining us now, Harvard Kennedy Senior Fellow. Megan, let's get straight to Europe, the ECB tomorrow. Christine Lagarde coming out and telling EU leaders reportedly that if they don't act, we could have an outcome that reminds us of 08. Your thoughts on that line? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty stark. Um, I think it's probably a bit overdone, except for where Italy is concerned, right? Because Italy still has a massive debt burden. They're almost certainly in recession. They're going to go further into recession with the entire country in lockdown. And so then, you know, you could get some throwback to the sovereign debt crisis. Um, But I do think that the ECB has more tools now than they had in 2008, which is a a good thing. I'm just not sure they're going to use them this week. So... Um, I think they'll probably end up cutting rates, and they'll probably announce more QE. I don't think that will help much at all. Um, what the tool that they do have that could help is their targeted lending refinancing operations, the Teltros, um, which already exist, uh, and they should use them to try to get cash exactly where cash is needed. This is a different challenge to 2008 in that in 2008, for all of us across the developed world, we were looking at the seizing up of markets. Um, and a multi-year decline and then really slow recovery. This time around, a lot of businesses need a, you know, a bridge loan for a quarter or two 
and then they might be able to weather this. And so getting cash exactly where it's needed is difficult. I think the Teltros could help just because they're targeted and and subsidized by the ECB, but I don't think we'll hear an announcement about it. Well, let's talk about those lending tools and talk to our listeners about the Teltro. If you're not familiar, too familiar with ECB monetary policy over the last few years, it has been a tool that they've deployed many times under President Mario Draghi, Megan. How can Christine Lagarde adapt that to address the SME issue? So she could offer Teltros at its own rate rather than at the deposit rate right now. So right now, um, banks can borrow from the ECB at the deposit rate uh, which is negative, so they get paid, as long as they lend on to the real economy. And so it can be targeted more specifically to lending on to the SMEs or to lending to small companies in distress. Um, and the, the Teltro rate could be deeply negative. So essentially banks could borrow from the ECB at, let's say, negative 200 basis points, so they get paid to borrow. And then they could lend it on to uh, distress companies at negative rates as well. So they benefit right. from a carry trade, but everybody gets subsidized by the ECB, essentially. Megan Green, in, in honor of all the people listening to this who studied some of this in some books at some time, what you're discussing almost sounds like devious or uh, affected or funny money procedures. Is there any evidence any of this will work without some form of consequence out there? Well, so you could end up with a misallocation of capital. You're right. If you're subsidizing everyone, everyone will want to borrow. It's like, uh, it's like I feel like I'm at you know, central bank T-ball. Everybody gets a blue ribbon. <laughs> to some degree. And the, this isn't the first best option for anyone, of course. A big fiscal stimulus package would be the best option. Um, but that doesn't seem to be coming down the line in the way or the size that lots of people are hoping for, particularly in the EC- in, in the Eurozone. And so the ECB is kind of the second best option here. But, it, but at least there is one. Um, you know, in the U.S., the Fed's hands are really tied by Dodd-Frank after the last crisis. So at least the ECB has some more, more room for maneuver. Mm. Megan, I'm, I'm kind of struck by, by the focus right now on the public sector, the public response from politicians and, uh, and, and monetary policy members. You and I have talked a lot about the private investing sector and how it's exploded with respect to capital. Supposedly, mm-hmm. there's all this dry powder on the books of private equity firms and private debt firms. Why isn't the focus on whether or not they are going to actually deploy some of that and help some companies stay in business through this period of time with bridge loans or other types of measures? Yeah, that's a great question. So for starters, I'm not sure that there is a perception that there's tons of dry powder out there in the private markets, um, partly because we just don't know what's sitting on their books. So it's possible that they don't have any dry powder at all. Um, And there's, you know, for example, a lot of CLOs sitting out there um, that, that could go under. So I think that the credit worry certainly um, applies to private markets as well. Um, but secondly, you know, the private actors are in, in the business of making money. So um, it might be in their best interest to, to provide bridge loans, but they're under no obligation, that's for sure. So I think what we need to see is um, numbers that are so big coming out of fiscal or monetary authorities that are targeted um, to get us through these, quarter, you know, couple months, quarter or two, Uh, where we need to get cash, where uh, it's desperately needed for individuals and small corporates.
Megan, there also is a proposal out uh, by German regulators to possibly ease up on some of the capital requirements for banks. Basically, they don't have to hold as much capital if they use that money to go out and give loans to companies so that they can stay in business. I'm just wondering whether banks are really in, and should be in the position, forget you know extending some of the deadlines for maturities and things like that to keep people going, but to actually extend loans at a time when we could be heading into a recession and that could potentially financially weaken them. Yeah, so you raise a good point. I think it does make sense to reduce countercyclical capital buffers. We saw the UK did it earlier today. Um, it makes sense in the Eurozone too, but you're right. Um, for starters, you know, it could put banks in a perilous position going into a downturn. But also, it's not like the cost of borrowing has really been the issue. So it's, it's not like this will make businesses desperately want to go and borrow from banks. And it's not like banks are actually obliged to go ahead and lend. So there is a question about how much any of that capital is really being freed up for lending because banks get to make their own decisions even if governments lean on them. Um, So I'm not sure how much this will help. I'm not particularly worried about um, banks in this case, although European banks I I am more worried about than than U.S. banks. Um, But, you know, I think if we're heading into a downturn anyhow, um, it's worth trying to avoid one rather than not doing anything because you're worried that a downturn might come. And Megan, thank you so much. Megan Green with us with the Harvard Kennedy uh, Senior Fellow. Thrilled to have her with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.